Well, fancy seeing you all here today. It's, uh, it's great to be a pastor of real people and not just people online. And to see your faces, it's been fantastic. I've gotten to know several of you over the last couple of weeks, and uh, now the real people come. And uh, looking forward to seeing the next service as well. Uh, I just have this habit of liking to tease people and laughing and making, uh, making this a pleasant time to come. So this is your family, your church family, your church home, and uh, I get to be the new pastor of you all. So thank you for that privilege. Uh, we are going to continue in our series of messages on refocusing. And maybe a couple of years ago, you heard of this story. I'm going to relate to you an account that happened in Australia that the police uh, described. Uh, They received a number of phone calls, frantic phone calls early one morning, with a woman woman was screaming hysterically, and there was a man yelling, I'm going to kill you, you're dead, and die, die along with sounds of furniture being smashed around. And uh, so they came to this apartment, they knocked on the door, and a man who was quite out of breath opened the door and they said, um, here's, the, here's the dialogue. Uh, where's your wife? Uh, he says, uh, I don't have one. Well, then where's your girlfriend? I don't have one of those either. <laughs> um, we had a report of a domestic violence going on and a woman screaming and, and furniture being thrown around. Where is she? I don't know what you're talking about. He's police said, come on, mate. Uh, People clearly heard you yelling. You were going to kill her, and furniture was being thrown around the apartment. And uh, someone is yelling, you're going to kill her, and she's going to die. And at that point, the man looked really sheepishly and said, it was a spider. (laughs) Sorry? It was a spider. It was a really big spider, he said. The police uh, realized that he had been chasing around a spider with bug spray and throwing furniture around and screaming. He says, well, where's the, where's, where's the woman? He says, well, that was me, actually. <laughs> I hate spiders. <laughs> There's some things that can cause great fear and trepidation in our life, and some of them you know, are, are, are founded. Fear of fire, fear of failing an exam if you don't study. And sometimes there's other fears that are less rational, fear of, you know, to, to you it might be rational, to me it may be not, fear of an elevator, fear of flying, fear of um, long words, there's actually, there's actually a fear of being afraid. Uh, and these things can cause us a lot of uh, frustration in life and, and uh, pr- uh, inhibit us from doing some things that we would like to do and experience some things that we'd like to do. But fears and doubts can really cause us to take our eyes off of what's important in life. Particularly when God calls us, uh, we can be so afraid sometimes that we are paralyzed to do anything significant in God's kingdom. Fears can easily and quickly sideline us. I think of Moses telling God, you know, God, (laughs) I can't talk well. Pick someone else. Or think of Gideon. Uh, he, He... God must have been pretty accommodating because Gideon says, God, I don't trust you. Prove to me that you are who you say you are and that you're calling me. Thomas, the disciple, everyone else believed that Jesus had rose from the dead, but he says, I'm not going to believe till I, I see for myself. I'm going to see the nail prints in his hands, and then I'll believe. But Jesus also called three other men to follow him, and they, every one of them had an excuse or a reason why they couldn't follow Jesus. 
Every one of them should have taken God at his word. But fear and distractions and other priorities prevented them from being involved in kingdom activities. You know, to me, these, uh, these, some of the fears just don't make sense. I think mice are cute, you know, fuzzy little things. But when a little mouse runs through a room full of people, you can see people scurrying and screaming. I, go, I, I don't understand it. Or some people are terrified of speaking in public. Others can't get enough of it. Um, you know, there's uh, lots of different fears. And I, I, I don't have a fear of flying. I've flown all over the world. I don't have a fear of water. I, I go on cruises and swimming and all that. Don't have a fear of of elevators, but uh, I do have a fear that has plagued me since childhood, and it's because uh, of an incident that happened in my home, and it's a fear of noises in the dark at night. You see, it involves, um, it involves a screaming mother, a burglar, and a father that was rampaging through the house to try and get rid of a, someone that shouldn't have been in our home. And from that moment on, at about six years old, I have been terrified of noises in the middle of the night. And I, if I hear a noise, I, I, I get paralyzed in my bed. And I'm thinking, what is it? It's got to be a burglar. Because we actually had three people in our home when I was growing up. And I just thought, you know, it's got to be another burglar. And so I, I, but I, I forced myself to get up. You know, I'm the man of the house now. I'm the dad. I have to protect my family. And so I get up. And, of course, I have something close by that I call the equalizer. And uh, it's a fairly intimidating um, knife. <laughs> uh, and, um, and I take it with me looking through the place to see that uh, everything's okay. Sometimes, you know, I can find what the noise is. The other night, the wind took our, um, our umbrella from the deck and picked it up and threw it over top of our house to the front yard, bouncing off the ceiling. And that woke me up. Uh, you know, I, I, I have to get a hold of my fear and uh, realize that it's probably just an open window or a, a car that went by or something before I can breathe again and get back into bed and fall asleep. But there's a fellow I want to look at today who, who had doubts and who had fears that really ruined his life. It ruined his future. It ruined his, his call on, on his life. Uh, we find him in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And what was going on in this particular section is that God's people had decided they were tired of being ruled by prophets. God would talk to a prophet. The prophet would talk to the people. But they were kind of tired of that routine, and so they wanted to have a king like everyone else did. Like all the other surrounding nations had their kings and their armies and all that, we want a king too. And so God gave in, in a sense, and he chose Saul to be the next or the very first king. And Saul is an interesting character. In fact, twice in the very first description of him, it says he's very handsome. I don't know. 1 Samuel chapter 9, it says there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, and uh, he was a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul. It says, a handsome young man. And there was not a man among all the people of Israel more handsome than he from his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the other people. Tall, dark, and handsome. It's like he had, and he came from a family of wealth. He had it all. Uh, everyone looks to him. My son grew up uh, faster than a lot of kids in his grade. He was about six inches taller, and they would often go to him before they would go to a teacher to settle disputes because he was big and tall and athletic and all of that. That's who Saul was. You'd see him head and shoulders above everyone else. So the prophet Samuel 
uh, is instructed by God to anoint this young man, he's about 32 years old, as the first king over the Israelite nation. So when the prophet informs Saul that God chose him to become king, this impressive-looking young man wasn't so certain. See, there's some history with his family. There's some history with his tribe. Uh, Saul, uh, sorry, Saul says to Samuel, he says, I, 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 am I not a descendant of Benjamin from the smallest of the tribes of Israel? Isn't my family the least important of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why, why do you even talk to me like this? Like, don't tease me with this. It doesn't make sense. The reason Benjamin was so small, the tribe of Benjamin out of the 12 tribes of Israel, is because they did some pretty nasty stuff. In the, in the past, a couple of generations, and the other 11 tribes decided to wipe them out to get even. And so they nearly just totally destroyed the tribe of Benjamin because of what ben, the tribe had done. And so they were in the process of, of rebuilding as a tribe, having more kids and growing as families, but they also had a reputation to overcome. They had messed up. They had caused a stench <laughs> because of what they had done. And so history sometimes can prevent us from, from doing what we need. We, we, we somehow think that we don't deserve it or we're not good enough. The truth is we may battle insecurity because of where we come from. I don't know, some people say they grew up on the wrong side of the tracks or they grew up with, a, with an accent or came from a different place or their family background was messed up and so they don't feel secure or confident in themselves. They're not like everyone else. They didn't have the advantages of any, everyone else. And that's what Saul is saying. You don't know who you're talking to. Like, not only is my family the smallest one in our tribe, but our tribe has is, is got a, a mark on it. We've got a history and no one likes us. In fact, you can even read the passage in 1 Samuel 9 where some of the other people looked at him and says, who, who is this guy you want to lead us? What good is he? He could never lead us. We're not going to follow him. It just put more doubt in, in Saul's heart that he wasn't good enough for the position. My wife led a Bible study when we were overseas in Norway and we had the women's group come to our home and sit in circles in the living room in, the, in chairs and for the life of her, she couldn't figure out how, how, how come the, the ladies from Africa were all sitting in chairs behind the, the, the circle of chairs. They wouldn't sit with the white women. And finally, my wife says, you know, you know she, she's, come in, you know, come in, there's a room. No, 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 we're okay, we're okay. Finally, she asked one of them, what's going on? Why won't you join the circle? And they said, well, it's because when we were colonized in Africa, we were told we were no good, that we were never equal to whites, that we never should consider ourselves on the same level as whites. And so that's what we believe for generations. We have difficult times sitting with the white people. Well, my wife made sure there were no back row chairs the next week. <laughs> Forced them to all sit on one as uncomfortable as they might have been. You know, we cannot let messages about the past or where we come from uh, or of our humble upbringing speak louder than God and his call in our life. Nothing that's happened in the past can keep us from a future calling with God. He, he knew all about Saul's history. He knew about Saul's family. He knew about the insecurities and the fears. He still called him because he had a plan for Saul's life. So the old prophet Samuel in verse 21 of chapter 9, uh, he, he has Saul come stay with him overnight uh, in his home because Saul was some distance away. Saul had actually been... Uh, 
chasing after some uh, missing donkeys and was a couple of days away from home. And God spoke to Samuel and said, hey, tell Saul everything's okay, donkeys were found, but I got a job for you. And so he tries to to convince Saul that uh, it's going to be okay, people are more worried about you than they are about the donkeys because they've already come home, but let me tell you, God's got a word for you. I'm going to pick you to make a difference in the life of my people. I'm going to give you a responsibility like no one has ever had in the history of our people. And Saul wasn't really too interested in that. He didn't know what Samuel was talking about. It just didn't make sense to him. So a few days later, Samuel calls all the people together. All the tribes are brought in together. And he has them come before the Lord one by one. Eleven tribes go by, but the tribe of Benjamin is picked. And I think people probably held their breath like, like what's going on? The Benjamin? What are you, crazy? And then his family in the tribe of Benjamin comes before the Lord and Saul's family is chosen, the smallest tribe, the smallest family. And then when each member of the family comes by, Saul is the one that's chosen by God to be the king. So in front of the entire nation, God handpicks this guy to lead his people. And a cheer goes up, they got their new king, they all applaud, and they look around and he's nowhere to be found. (laughs) Where's, Where's Saul? Where's Saul? Well, he's hiding. He can't handle the pressure. He doesn't know what to do. He's, he's embarrassed. Everyone's looking at him. And where do they find God actually has to tell him he's, uh, he's hiding uh, by the animals where the luggage is kept. And so they go find him and they bring him out. And hey, hey guys, I'm here. <laughs> he becomes the reluctant king. The truth is our insecurity can cause us to hide from, from or doubt God's call in our life. And we even can hide within our own emotional baggage. We have stuff. We have history. We've sinned against God sometimes. We messed up. And we think that that sometimes disqualifies us from serving in God's kingdom. God knows all that. Yet still, His grace is enough. Our past doesn't determine our future with God. Sometimes we say, I can't obey God because I don't know enough. Or I don't have enough time. Or I can't obey God because... Because it would mean too much change in my life, or I'm not worthy. I've had people actually say, I'm not worthy, when I said, we'd like to consider you to be a deacon in our church. We'd like you to consider being an elder in our church. They say, I'm not worthy. Like, you don't know who I am. You don't know my past. I'm going, I, don't, I see. I like what I see. I like your presence. I like the future that you have in our church. No, 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 I couldn't. My dad was a deacon. I'm not, I'm not like my dad. I'm going, whatever the excuses, the fear and insecurities can prevent us from actually serving significantly in God's kingdom. What affirmation have you been given by God? You see, when Saul was on the road, Samuel told him, the Spirit of God is going to come upon you. You're going to be transformed into a prophet. You're going to prophesy in my name. And Saul's going, what are you talking about? Sure enough, Saul comes across a band of prophets, and the Spirit of the Lord gets a hold of Saul's heart, and he begins to prophesy. He was a changed person because of the presence of God. Well, that's what happens with you and me, right? When God comes to our life, he, he transforms us. That's what the word born again means, that we are born again spiritually. We become a new person, new creation. His spirit and his presence comes to live in us, helping to transform us from the inside out to be the kind of person he wants us to be, to, to be freed from the past and embrace the future with him. You know, for our church to fulfill its God-given mission, 
to reach our community, to go into all the world, every person has to step up. Every person has to be involved and to do what God has called you to do and me to do. And it involves a change sometimes, change in priorities, change in how our schedule, to be involved in what God wants us to do to make an impact in this world. He, you ever ask yourself, why wasn't I born in the 1800s? Why wasn't I born in the 1500s? Why was I born now, here, this place? Why does he have me here? It's because he's got a plan for your life. He's, he's got a plan to reach the community, plan to, to reach the world, and he's using us, his people. Here's the truth. Our insecurity sometimes can lead us to place our faith in people instead of God. We often want people's approval or people's affirmation or people's praise. Sometimes we're so insecure of ourselves, uh, we forget that God has called us and we try and please the people and we get our eyes off of God. Our focus is in the wrong place. So for King Saul, initially, he, he disobeyed God's command. He was supposed to go off to battle and he was supposed to totally destroy the town. Everything in it, anything breathing was supposed to, they had sinned greatly against God and they'd been a, a a horrible influence in the region, and God says, enough, like, enough. Judgment is coming. He was going to use Saul and the army to bring judgment on these, this town. Well, Saul was afraid of the people, and he let his men loot the town when they were supposed to just burn it all up. He didn't want them to think badly of him. He wanted to think that he was, that he, that he was a great king, you know, benevolent king, a kind king, a generous king, even though God said, no, destroy it all. But he was too afraid. He, he didn't want to look bad in the eyes of his people. Again, uh, there's another chance where the, the prophet Samuel wanted to do a, 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 an offering before a great battle. And Saul's men started to trickle away out of fear because Samuel hadn't shown up yet. Well, Saul took matters into his own hands because he was afraid the people were going to abandon him. Didn't trust God. And I don't know. Fear of people. Wanting their affirmation and their attention and their praise rather than being content with God's favor can sideline us also from God's activity. So what would have to happen for you to go from being a faithful and bold servant of God to being weak and fearful? What would it take for you to walk away from God? Sometimes... Being diagnosed with cancer can make a strong person tremble with fear. Caught you off guard, or, or now you're afraid of the future. Now you're afraid, who's going to take care of my family? Like, what's, what's going to, how will this end? Sometimes a, a, a medical diagnosis can shake you at your core. What about having a son or a daughter in trouble? can really test our faith in God. God, I prayed for them to walk the straight and narrow, and they've gone off track. Sometimes that can make us blame God and turn on God because he's not doing what we want in our time schedule. Or marriage troubles can be all-consuming. It can be everything you think about all day long. Is, you know, is my marriage going to last? Is it going to break up? Sometimes that can be so uh, dominant in your life that you forget about God altogether and that he, has, he is powerful. He can... Uh, he can help out in that kind of a situation, maybe unstable financial position. Maybe it would, your finances are going rocky, the company's not doing well, you might lose your job, maybe you do some things that you're not proud of to try and, you know, fix it. What would it take for you to compromise, to be afraid, to lose your faith, to lose your focus on God? You know, leading researchers, researchers have indicated that 
everyone, as we're growing up, they, they believe that 75% of the message we get from people and from family and from friends and from society, 75% are negative messages, negative programming working against us. Tell us that you're not good enough or, or you'll never make it or there's someone better than you. 75%. So you come into life and you come into adulthood with, with three-quarters of the information you've received telling you you're not good enough. You'll never make it. But then you encounter God, and he says, you're special. Like, I've chosen you to be a part of my kingdom. I've chosen you for special assignments. I've got, I've got um, stuff that I would like you to be a part of you, you have no uh, idea about right now. You know, so most people, we have, to, we have to overcome our past in one way or another. We have to overcome self-doubt or fear, fear of failure or insecurities or family flaws. But when God steps into our life, everything changes. It's like there's a reset have you ever had to reboot your computer to clear up some problems? Kind of God does that with us. His Spirit comes in and begins to reset our mind, the way we think uh, about ourselves and about things. Second Timothy 1.7 says, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. My dad likes to say, one person plus God is a majority. Whenever God calls, everything's going to work out when we respond. If we don't incorporate the power of Christ in our life, our mind will continue to respond according to the negative programming that has been conditioning us. In other words, the, the realization that Christ is in us, that his spirit is present in us, should, should make all the difference. When you don't think you're good enough, God says you're not, but with me you are. <laughs> My past, it might keep me back, it says your past is your past. I've got a tremendous future for you. God wants to transform our minds from dwelling on fear to dwelling on the power of Christ in us. So Romans chapter 12, verse 2. You probably know the verse. You can quote it. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let the insecurities go. Let the fears go. Focus on God himself. He says, testing, by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, don't believe the lies anymore. Don't be ruled by fear anymore power of God is resident in you. Psalm 25, uh, beginning at verse 1, it says, I will lift up my soul to you, O Lord. I trust in you. Don't let me be ashamed. <laughs> Don't let me be embarrassed. Don't let my enemies triumph over me. This says, cause me to understand your ways and teach me your paths and guide me in your truth. Because our fears are always lying to us, Right? We're being deceived all the time by our fears. A lot of them aren't rational. A lot of them, when you put your fear up against God, you're going, okay, fear, <laughs> you don't stand a chance because God is with me. Guide me in your truth, it says, and teach me, for you are the God who delivers me, and my hope is in you all day long. And then finally in Proverbs 3, 5 to 8, and you know this verse as well, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not depend on your own understanding. Because I don't always know what's true. I don't always know what's right. I, God is the only one that can make sense of this circumstance and what's going on. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. And do not be wise in your own opinion, but fear the Lord. There's a good fear. It's fear the Lord. Because he's the one that can empower us and lead us and guide us. And turn away from evil, and this will bring healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Honestly, I think... We probably deal with some insecurities our entire life. 
We just learn how to manage them. We learn how to overcome them. We learn how to not let them control us any longer. Insecurities are lies that keep us back. The truth is Christ in us. When you come up against that fear, someone says, I'd like you to consider serving in this area. I'd like you to help me out in a new ministry. I'd I'd like you to consider going with me to Bolivia because we've got a mission trip lined up and we want to make a difference in this town. Rather than saying no, like maybe you, you used to do, but maybe say, let me pray about that. Let me see what God wants, and then I'll let you know. Sometimes if we just say, let me pray about it, God has a chance to work on our heart and give us the courage necessary to be involved in his invitation. Breathe a prayer, ask him what he wants you to do, and trust him to walk with you into a new place in your life, one with more confidence and more strength. If you have your Lord's Supper containers, go ahead and take off the first one. I'm going to pray a prayer before we take the Lord's Supper together. But go ahead and prepare now, and then we'll eat this together. Father God, what an amazing God you are. You, you pick the weak. You pick the least. You pick the ones that everyone else seems to overlook. And you are show yourself strong through them, all throughout the scriptures, God. You, you chose those that were small in everyone else's eyes. So you could show how strong you are through them when they're obedient to you and have faith in you. Father God, we are not the biggest church in the city. We, we, we have our flaws. We, we have struggles. We have everything that would, we could look at to say, you know what, maybe we're just, uh, we'll just keep our head down. Maybe we'll just look for evenness here. But you say, no, 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 I've got plans for you. I know what I want to do to you to make a difference in this community, in this city, in this province, in this country, and the entire world. I want to use you. You look small in your own eyes, but let me tell you, you plus me can do anything. And that's the God that we come before today to serve, to worship. Thank you, God, for being our God and letting us be your people. As we prepare, Father, for the Lord's Supper, may our hearts be ready. May we submit to your presence and to your will. May we realize that this is a reminder of a very heavy cost involved in our salvation. Thank you for this moment of reflection. We pray you guide us through this time in Christ's name. Amen. So this time of the Lord's Supper, often we have a table out front that would have some of the elements. We would have the juice and the bread on it. and I call it a table of reconciliation between God and men. It's a place where we realize that our sin was the reason Christ had to die. There's no other way for us to be reconciled with his Father, to live in heaven with him for eternity, unless we have a sacrifice to cover the penalty of our sins. It's a place where we're reminded that a suffering Savior had to die to provide our salvation. But if we repent of our sin and place our faith in him, He is just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So because of the events of the past couple of weeks, I want to take a little different approach than I've ever done before at a Lord's Supper time. But you can't avoid the news of what happened at the Indian Residential School in Kamloops and the discovery of a mass grave in the past few weeks. I I admit we don't know the whole story, and that's being investigated even now, but There's enough anecdotes that we've heard from people that have lived uh, and survived 
residential school experiences to know that too many horror stories took place at such institutions. Like we can't even truly fathom the depth of um, destructiveness that happened to those that, that lived there for, for years. You see, schools run by churches should be the safest place on earth. It should be a place where you can find love and acceptance and grace and forgiveness. But clearly that didn't happen. So our hearts break for any and every child that is forced to endure physical abuse and neglect and abandonment, torture, and religious abuse, much less needless death. We try, and most churches try really, really hard to make our, our place a, a safe and accepting uh, location for children and for teenagers to feel safe and loved and incredibly special. And for someone to twist that and abuse that trust, uh, it breaks our heart. So I want to pray today for both survivors and the parents of missing children who were caught up in the situation. And I ask you to bow your heads and uh, as, we, as we pray uh, and then take the Lord's Supper, would you just ask God, how can I be a person of reconciliation? How can I be an instrument of peace in the midst of all of this? So let's pray. Father in heaven, since the beginning of mankind, you have seen uncountable times when people have done evil things to one another, unspeakable things. And you've seen innocent men and women and children suffer and die at the hands of cruel people in power over them. And we ask for justice. We ask for healing of hearts and souls and minds and bodies. We ask for grace and forgiveness and reconciliation so that people can live in peace together. You understand the injustice of humanity, the cruelty, the suffering, as you watch your son, Jesus, also to be unjustly beaten, shamed, and mocked and killed by religious people. Father in heaven, you are the only one who can truly bring peace to someone's heart and repair a damaged soul. And as your representatives here on earth, let us know what our part should be to bring healing and to the hurting and damaged and to offer genuine love to those in need. Let us be agents of peace and facilitators of forgiveness who bring hope to a hurting world. Amen.